this morning, I invite you to turn please to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6. We come this morning in our final, uh, we come this morning to the final uh, major topic in this letter to the Ephesians uh, that's addressed by the Apostle Paul. If you recall, in one of our first studies, way back in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, uh, a key verse of this letter that sort of brings everything together and, and ties, it, ties it in into the unifying uh, thought of the, the letter. Uh, we read these words that through Christ there was to be put into effect when the times have reached their full fulfillment to bring together all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And if you recall in those early messages, we talked about how because sin entered the world, that things were broken and shattered and divided and separated and continuing to just be in conflict with one another. But through the gospel and through Jesus Christ, there is a, a bringing together, a reconciliation of all things through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the embracing of Christ in the gospel. Uh, and so there's this bringing together of all things under one head, which is Christ. And that is what God is in the process of doing in this present world, of bringing things together through the gospel of Jesus Christ that will ultimately be realized in its fullness at his uh, second, second coming. Uh, and we have seen that God is reconciling uh, uh, sinners to himself through the gospel. We've seen that God, through Jesus Christ, is reconciling uh, believers to one another so that we are able not to just get along, but there's a togetherness and a unity. God is, God is bringing together Jew and Gentile in the gospel so that there's no longer a division between races or ethnicities or any type of real man-made division that exists, that all who are in Christ are one. We've seen how God is bringing husbands and wives together, and in that unity, when they are functioning under the power of the Holy Spirit in their God-given uh, uh, roles and capacities, that it shows the oneness that is between Christ and his church. We've seen how God is at work bringing together families with parents and children being under the headship of Christ and seeking to be obedient to him, how that can be reflective uh, of obedience to God and in walking in obedience to him and, and living out his truth among the home and home life. And we've seen how God is bringing employer and employee together in their given roles so that there is a unity and a oneness that can be seen there. Now that the only place uh, that, that there should never be oneness or a, an agreement or a togetherness or, or a bringing together or trying to, to bring them or wed them together is this, that, that there is never to be oneness according to Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 with the enemy of our souls, the devil. Now, believers in Jesus Christ face battles on three fronts. And it may have been Martin Luther, at least I've heard it attributed to him, that he came up with this. Maybe he coined it himself. Maybe he heard it from someone else. Uh, maybe I heard wrong. But there's three fronts that we face in the spiritual battles of life. 
we, we battle the world. And when we speak about the world, we see this in Scripture, that the world speaks about the philosophies, the systems, the approaches to life without God, without God in the thinking. And it's antagonistic to the things of God, to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. The world and its systems, that's one place where we face battles. A second place that the believer faces battles is with our flesh, our own fallen human nature, which if you remember in some of our earlier studies in Ephesians, just as a way of a reminder, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that is not eradicated. Have any of you realized that you still have an old sinful nature that draws you away? It's still there. And that's a battlefront that we face. And fallen human nature, which every person has, is bent away from God. And we call this in theology total depravity. And I think that the more that you study the Word of God and the more that you see yourself in the mirror of God's Word, the more that you realize that apart from the saving work of God in Jesus Christ, you are hopeless, you are helpless, you have no strength. There is not a postage stamp of goodness in any of us. And I hope that you realize that because that should drive you all the more to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the third area where we face battle is the one that we're going to look at in the context of Scripture this morning and over the next several weeks, that we face the arch enemy of our soul, the arch enemy of God and his people, the devil, whose ultimate goal is destruction and death. Did you know that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, that you signed up for this? I don't mean that to be irreverent or disrespectful, but you, by virtue of being in Jesus Christ, are facing these battles, as am I, daily, relentlessly. And how are we going to approach these battles, these fronts, and in particular, uh, the enemy uh, of our souls? Are you aware of these battlegrounds, and how are you responding to them? Now, with this uh, subject before us this morning, uh, there can be two extremes, both of which are to be avoided. The first is to ignore it as though uh, the battle doesn't exist at all. Or if I don't think about the devil, or if I don't think about evil, and if I don't think about things, it'll just leave me alone. It'll, it'll just, those things won't bother me. To ignore it and, and pretend and to close your eyes and stick your head in the sand as the proverbial ostrich does and, and just forget that there's a battle going on there. That, that's unacceptable according to Scripture. But the second extreme is also to be avoided as well. And that is be, you become uh, almost obsessed with and almost have this phobia that behind everything that happens from, from, from the, you know, the, the hangnail to the, to the most dreadful thing you could think of, that the devil is behind it all. A couple weeks back, I, I boiled up some chicken broth, or boiled up some chicken that was broth. I wanted to take a sip of the broth, and without thinking, I took it from the boiling pot, put it in the cup, and downed it. And it went down my throat before I could even think of it. Now, I don't think that that was because of the, the devil made me do it. You know what I'm saying? I think it was just because I wasn't thinking and I was being stupid. 
Would you agree? There you go. There you go. You confirmed my, 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 my thoughts. Exactly. To be sure, Satan and his demons don't wish uh, to be exposed. In fact, when you come to a topic like this among God's people, there's always seems to be distractions. You know, it could be the distraction of a cold, which I haven't had for a long time, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, there's a cold. Am I saying the devil's behind it? No, but it's kind of interesting, the timing of that. Anyway. Yes. Yet, as believers, we are told not to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes, 2 Corinthians 2.11. Now, I have a lot to say this morning in, in regard to this topic. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pray, because I think that's important. Uh, so let's pray. Father, we take just a moment once again to come before you in prayer and to ask for your help in the opening of your word that you might give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive, minds that understand, and then hands and feet that are ready to put into practice what you show us from your word that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for myself in the communication of this message that you will help me to do that with the strength that you supply, with the guidance of your Spirit, O Lord. And I would pray for myself and all who are in the hearing of this message that they, O Lord, would take to heart what you reveal to us through your word. And we would ask, Father, that in your mercy and grace to us, you would bind the hands of the enemy that, that, that would distract us or thwart us, or keep us from listening to what you have to say to us. And Father, may we draw close to you in these days. May we draw near to you, and may you draw near to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask the question here. What is necessary for believers to be victorious in the midst of the spiritual battles we are engaged in throughout life. What do we need to be victorious? Uh, I think that there are three main things. Uh, the first one is this. We need an understanding of the enemy. An understanding of the enemy. This subject is great, and it's really a study on its own. Uh, if you were to take a comprehensive course in this subject matter, it would probably come under the heading in, in theology proper as uh, angelology. Angelology. And more specifically, demonology. Demonology. For those of you who might have had seminary or, or background in Bible college or some other Christian college, you may have taken a course that included these topics. Uh, as you know, those sometimes take a whole semester to, to go through everything that the Scripture has to say. And I have to be honest, I had a hard time trying to pare this down into one message, hopefully, to be able to bring to you the, the pertinent things that we need to consider today. 
we're going to consider uh, just three points under this topic of understanding the enemy in our spiritual battle. So to start with, to understand our enemy, we need to have in, mind, in place these three things. Number one, uh, his name. His name. Now, you may or may not be aware of this, but in Scripture, when a person was named, uh, it was more than just a designation or a way of identifying an individual or a place, but it also became in the Hebrew and in their understanding uh, almost a descriptive term of, of something that captured the nature, if you would, of the, the person, uh, the individual, the place, or what have you. And our enemy is, is named for us. He is identified in Scripture. And, and one of the things that, that I, that I want to say to you is that he is named, which means that this enemy of ours, in fact, is a personal spirit being. It's not used in Scripture in these names that we will consider briefly together as just a metaphor for evil. Because some people have come to that conclusion. Well, the, the, these really aren't addresses to or concerning an actual being or person. It's just sort of a generic idea of, of evil in the world. I find it interesting, somebody pointed out, that if you take the word devil and you remove the D, that he's no longer personal and all, what do you have left? Evil. Now, of course, that's only in the English, but, you know, kind of interesting. Ponder that for a moment. But he's named. And here are some names. Number one, the devil. Uh, the Greek word is diabolos. Uh, this name means to accuse, to malign, uh, to slander. It's used 32 times uh, in the New American Standard and ESV. We've already seen Paul make reference to the devil in chapter 4 of Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 27, where he reminds us that as believers, we are not to give the devil a foothold in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter declares, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking Let me read it again. The, the devil prowls around like a roaring, roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's like a lion looking for someone to devour. He is your enemy. Who? The devil. 1 Peter 5.8. Now, uh, if you use the King James Bible, just be aware that the King James Bible, when those translators translated it into English, they, they didn't use the word demons they use the word devils in the plural. But properly, if you're to be accurate according to the way Scripture uses these names, there is one devil, but there are many demons. Okay? So just keep that in mind, it, it, depending on the translation that you're using. So we, we, he's named as the devil. He's also mentioned in Scripture as Satan. Satan means uh, adversary. The adversary. I find it interesting that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, if you're familiar with that passage, Matthew 4, verse 3 says the tempter came to him. In verse 5, it says the devil 
And then in verse 10 it says, Satan. And Jesus named him. Satan, be gone. So these are his names. They not only identify him and designate him, but they are also descriptive. Do you see in the, in the translating of what the name means that it's descriptive of his nature as well? Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. If we take the words of Jesus to heart, we would see that he believed that the devil was a real personal being. So if you come away and say, well, that's just a metaphor, that's just a imagery, that's just really not, you are contrary to what the Scripture declares. You are contrary to your very Lord who named him and called him a personal being in that sense. A third name that he has that comes out of the Old Testament, and we'll go to this passage at some point, uh, is then found in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 11 uh, in the King James Lucifer. Lucifer. Lucifer is a, is a translation of the phrase morning star uh, or light bearer. You say, well, how can this one who is known as the devil and Satan be a light bearer? Well, we're going to see in a moment that Isaiah 14 is probably an indication of his position before he fell. That he had a unique position in God's economy and in heaven prior to his fall. And he was the light bearer or the morning star. Now, when you think about the devil, the Satan, or Lucifer, you, know, you probably get some type of mental image, and I don't suggest that you try to conjure one up. But the way that the world describes the devil is a, a being that has horns and a pitchfork and a tail and you know, on and on it goes. In fact, I remember once Chuck Swindoll made the comment that he had this little, this little statue of Satan that looked like that. And when people would come in for counseling in his office, he would, he would put that little thing somewhere where he knew that they would probably, their eyes would go in the counseling session. And he says, inevitably, somebody would find him peeking out from behind a book or you know, on, on sitting on top of a picture or hidden in a plant or whatever it was. And he did that purposely, and they would stop, and he says, he always knew by the expression on their face that they got it. And he says, the reason why I'm doing this is because the devil in maybe your life is, is one of the issues you're wrestling with, and you don't recognize it, but he's not going to appear like this little statue. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 tells us that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Something that's beautiful, something that's attractive, something that would make you want to pay attention, not be repulsed. See, that's where it calls for us as believing people to have a grounding in God's word and a discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, uh, turn to, to me to Revelation chapter 12 for a moment. Revelation chapter 12. And there's just but one verse that I want to read, even though this whole passage of Revelation chapter 12 is worth your study to give you insight into this conflict, this spiritual battle that's going on. But here, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, 
He says in verse 9, <clears throat> the great dragon, there's another designation, was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Now, if you want one verse that sort of puts all of them together for you, there you go. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. He's called the great dragon. He's called the serpent of old. He's called the devil. He's called Satan. And his goal is to lead the nations and people astray. Astray from what? Astray from the things of God. Astray from the things of God. I'm just going to mention these uh, here and move on quickly. Um, other designations that we have for this, this one in Scripture uh, is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the prince of this world, John 12, verse 31, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Ephesians 2 and, and verse 2. And those are other designations, though they are not proper names, they are designations to identify this enemy that we have, the enemy of our souls. Now, I mentioned in passing uh, demons and a demon. The word demon is used 30 times in the New Testament, and demons are mentioned 49 times. Uh, if you want a, a definition or a, a way of understanding what the Scripture means when it refers to a demon or demons, these are other fallen evil spirit beings. Let me say that again. Demons are other fallen evil spirit beings. And, if, and again, I won't take the time to turn there, but Revelation 12, again, verses 3 and 4, the imagery that is given there uh, of the dragon when he fell and was cast out, the imagery says that his tail swept a third of the stars with him. And it's believed by many, if, if you explore that a little bit biblically and even theologically, that what that is a reference to is Satan's fall in the past, that when he rebelled against God, when he fell, he drew a third of however many angels God created, he, he drew them away in his rebellion. Now, that's a frightening thought on one level because Scripture tells us that there are an innumerable number of angels at least from a human standpoint. And if you have a third of, a, of an innumerable number, that's a lot. That's a lot. So you have him named for us in Scripture in understanding the enemy. The second thing is his nature. You have his name, now his nature. One verse, I think, that really captures this for us, spoken by our Lord, is found in John's Gospel, chapter 8. So if you turn back with me, please, if you were in Revelation... Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 8. The same John who wrote the book uh, of the Gospel of John is the one who wrote Revelation. And he records these words of Jesus for us when Jesus said, verse 44 of John 8, You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. Now, he is rebuking the religious leaders who were coming against him who were plotting his death and his demise. He, he's really exposing the fact that behind their motivations is this one known as the devil. He says, verse 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. 
He's a murderer. What does a murderer do? A murderer seeks to stamp out life, to destroy. He was not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. Now, if you want a comprehensive statement, at least in part, of of the intentions of the devil that flow out of his very nature, there you have it given to us by the lips of Jesus. He's a murderer, a liar. He doesn't stand in the truth. He's the father of lies. We've already looked at 1 Peter 5.8. He's looking for someone to devour, to destroy. We wonder sometimes why don't we make progress in the Christian life? Why do I keep tripping up? Why do I keep failing? Why do I not make any progress spiritually? Part of that might be part of this spiritual battle that we're engaged in because the enemy doesn't want you to succeed. He doesn't want you to be victorious. He doesn't want you to stand in the victory that Christ has won for you. He wants to trip you up. He wants to destroy you. And if he could, he would take your life. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 3.5 tells us that he tempts. He's a tempter. And he knows all of our Achilles heel, what, what draws us away. And he attempts to do that. A temptation is a solicitation to evil, to sin, to rebellion, to something that's contrary to God. Now, when you are tempted, just by virtue of being tempted, that is not sin. When you yield to temptation, when you give in to temptation, when you agree with that lure, that bait, and you take it, then you sin. Temptation is not a sin, so just know that difference there. And much of the evil that is in this present world is one behind it who instigates it and uh, promotes it. Now, we'll look at one last thing here this morning. Bear with me. So we know our enemy by his name, and by his nature. And there's insight now into his origin, his beginnings. You say, well, where do you find in Scripture the origin or the, the, the beginning of this one known as the devil or Satan? Well, the Bible gives us, in the Old Testament in particular, two passages that when you read them, they are given in the context of a prophecy to the nation of Israel and to other leaders of of the prophet's day. But as you start to study those passages and read the the prophetic word given to them by God, you realize that, that what is being described is not only and exclusively something that applies in the natural, but the terms, the words, the extent to which they speak, speak beyond the person being addressed to something that's being revealed to us in the spiritual realm. Do you follow me? Nod your head if you, you follow me. Say yes or something. You know. 
So, so when you come to these passages, again, they, they are written in such a way that you could say, well, yeah, the prophet was saying that about the king or about this person or this circumstance. Yes, that's true on one level, but there's something much more to it than that because the, even the very descriptive things go far beyond any earthly prince to fulfill these things. And I think that what God has done in his word, and I, I, I will defend this, that these are actually insights given to us by God into the origin of the enemy of our souls. And one thing I want you to realize, if you haven't done so already, but keep this in mind, that Satan is not the opposite of God. He is a created being. He's not God's, like God's on one end and he's, no, 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 no. Here's God, here's everything else. Do you understand that? You know, so, so, do, so get that out of your mind that somehow, you know, the cosmic struggle is, will good or evil win? What's it going to be? What's it going to be? You know, today it's evil, today it's good. None of that. God is triumphant. And his victory will be seen and realized, for he is the Lord. Now, let's just turn to these two passages very briefly. I'm not going to take the time to explore them. I know you, now that I've piqued your interest, you want to go into in detail, but that's for you to do as well as part of your homework and study of God's word. But Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. So if you can remember 14 and double it, there you got you get the two passages. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And in Isaiah, it begins at verse 12. And, and the prophet writes, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. And morning star is that word translated Lucifer, or that name Lucifer that we have. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. And here's part of the the insight scripture gives as to how this came to be. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly of the most heights of the sacred mountains. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. And if you take the time to read through that, you'll see that five times this one said, I will. And set himself in opposition to God. And not only just in opposition to God, he wanted to topple God and bring him down. But read on. Verse 15, but you are brought down to the grave, to the pit. This is his fall. He fell. He fell from his original position. Well, what was that original position? Turn over to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. And here, beginning at verse 11, again, there is an earthly prince that's being addressed in the immediate context, but beyond that, there's something more. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So the king of Tyre is being addressed in part, but there's something much more beyond that. Because listen to these words. This cannot in any way ever be applied to any earthly ruler in any sense of the word. 
Continue on in verse 12. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, oxnard, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and your mountings were made of gold. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So here's a description of this, this one that, that God created. And it's glorious. It's magnificent. It's, it's jeweled. It's something to be admired, if you would, from a human standpoint even. You know? Now here, verse 14 says, you were the... You were anointed as a guardian cherub, so I ordained you. Uh, some translations have you were the anointed cherub who covers. Now, in our modern day, when we think of a cherub, we think of this pudgy little angel that has a cute little face with a bow and wearing a diaper and, and wings and is going to you know, shoot out an arrow to get you to love someone. That's not what the Bible says in, in terms of a cherub. A cherub was a spirit being. And our understanding, when you bring it under the heading of angelology, a cherub was one, and this anointed cherub seems to be one that was very close to the very throne of God as God's protector, if you would. Now, God doesn't need a protector, but he does this for our human understanding. Do you remember that over the, the, the ark the covering of the ark, which was called the mercy seat. There were two cherubim that had their wings spread out facing the mercy seat, representing the, the very throne of God. They were there. And, and, it's, and it's believed by some, and I would agree with the understanding of the commentators and theologians, that Satan's original place was that he was a high cherub an exalted angel, if you would, that had a special place very close to, if not closest to the throne of God. And notice this. Verse 14, you were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day that you were created. See, he created him perfect as best that we could use the term perfect, blameless, without fault, without imperfections. But read on, until wickedness was found in you. The I wills coming out, the pride coming out, the saying that I am going to not only make myself like God, I'm going to overcome God and assume His role in this universe. Someone has said, and rightly so, that if you really start to think about the concept of sin in the world, in our lives, the, the root of all that is pride, self, the I, the saying, I will not do what you say, I will do as I please. And you see, this Lucifer, Somewhere, and the Bible doesn't tell us when, but it must be prior to the creation of Adam and Eve because when we come and meet him as the serpent of old, he's in the garden and he's a tempter. 
And he's trying again to thwart and mess up and destroy and complicate the purposes and plans of God. But did you also notice that this text does not tell us that God made him to be wicked? That falls under the, if you would, if I could use this term properly, it falls under one of those mysteries that are given to us in Scripture that that's how God gives us. And I know theologians wrestle with that and try to make a, please just stop where Scripture stops and leave it at that and accept it by faith. Somewhere he fell and God cast him out. And when he rebelled, he took a third of the angels that were created also good with him. And now you have fallen angels, evil spirits, demons, if you would, on, uh, in, in the spirit realm. But you also have God's holy angels, who the Bible refers to as God's elect angels. Do you, do you see that it's important for we as believing people who take the word of God seriously, that we take all of the word of God seriously, and when we start to talk about these things in the spiritual realm, that we don't start to get this sort of woo kind of mentality about it. Or even allow the world to call us fools for believing these things. Let them call us fools. Let them give us whatever name they want to give us. If they're unbelievers, if they're not taking what God's word says, why should we be surprised? They're still under the influence of the enemy. Their eyes are still blinded. They're still in darkness. They still can't see. They're still embracing the angel who comes as an angel of light. And thinking it all is well. So God has given us this, that we might know the enemy of our souls. See, if, if we're to be and experience the victory God has for us in Jesus Christ, you've got to know the enemy. Now, we're going to understand that better once we get into the armor, which we didn't even touch on this morning. And I knew that that was going to happen. And I, I want to say this from the bottom of my heart, I, and forgive that coinage of phrase, but thank you for praying for me during these messages. I always need your prayers, but I need them all the more when we delve into these things. Because not only does the enemy want you to be distracted and not take this to heart, he doesn't want me even bringing it. So please continue to pray for me in preparing these messages as we move forward. Um, next time we pick up in the actual text where we should have been today, but that's okay. I hope you don't mind that it's taking a little longer. You know, uh, when, when I originally felt compelled to preach the book of Ephesians to us, I never realized it was going to take as long as it did. And that's not to say that I was intending to just sort of rush through things and just sort of give you a, a broad study of God's word. But it's taking us a little longer, and I hope that that's okay with you. And I trust that what we've considered today, that you've taken at least some notes and that you go back and you read the Word of God prayerfully and help me to understand if I've missed something. If, if somehow I'm, I'm distracted and, and being led astray in some of these things, then please show me scripturally so that we're making sure that all of us are accurate in our understanding of the enemy that we face.
Because if we're to stand in the victory that God has won for us in Jesus Christ, we need to understand our enemy. And it's only by our knowing the word of God, believing what God says about it, accepting it as fact by faith, and then living accordingly can we be victorious through Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence here with us this morning in a special way. I trust, O Lord, for myself and for all who are in the hearing of this word today that the things that we have considered from your word once again remind us and and drive us, if you would, in a good sense to our knees in prayer, to your word in study, and to once again total dependence upon Jesus Christ through the indwelling spirit to live and to function in this present world and in the battles that we face. The enemy is real. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to take this word that you have presented to us today. May the Holy Spirit seal it to our hearts. And may it be a part of that which we draw from, Lord, so that we can walk close with you in these days and be able to have a discernment of the battles that we are engaged in. And may we look to you in faith. May we trust you in Christ to enter into that victory that's already been won for us. Keep our minds focused on these things until we're able to explore them once again in further detail in our next time together. And Father, we'll thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.